I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Today's guest gives the impression of someone who has been building a large and diversified business and is now at the stage where all the pieces have started to come together. After an extended build-out, Pina Albo's Hamilton Group now has significant Lloyds, Bermuda and Dublin platforms covering specialty insurance, reinsurance and third-party asset management and is building further capabilities on the ground in the US ENS market via an MGA structure. It's also fully committed to a tech-enabled US-brokered small commercial joint venture operation in Attune. Listen to Pina as the group moves to the execution phase of its strategy and looks to be rewarded for the patience it has shown throughout the prolonged soft market into which it was born. Pina is a focused leader with strong convictions about where the market is headed. Her conclusions are concise, unambiguous and easy to follow. I highly recommend a listen. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access, who have kindly supported this podcast. Rick, first, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. Prime Holdings is a holding company, and we're excited to expand our claims TPA service, Claims Direct Access, which is the exclusive claims manager for Prime Insurance Company and has managed claims for Lloyd's since 1995 when we've been on the Lloyd's line slip as a risk taker. So we plan on coming over to London and uh, hopefully providing our partners more flexibility where we can issue prime paper where necessary. We can support and take risk on the Lloyd's line slip and offer our superior claim service, which is evidenced by Prime's own loss ratio for the past 10 years. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. So again, we're excited to bring superior claim service to the Lloyd's marketplace and offer the ability to share risk alongside them as we manage the claims. Well, thanks so much, Rick. And I'll make sure there are all the right links in the podcast notes. And let's get on with the podcast. So, Pina, thank you so much for giving up some time. I know you've been in board meetings and doing all sorts of things. Now that everything seems to be falling into place at Hamilton, you've had a lot of rebuilding and a lot of building going on. What's your plan? What's the really the long-term vision for Hamilton and how it's going to differentiate itself in this competitive market where we can see that perhaps capital isn't necessarily that much in short supply? Our strategy really hasn't changed, Mark. We're set out to build a global diversified specialty insurance and reinsurance company that embraces technology and analytics. That's the big headline. And our acquisition of Pembroke Managing Agency just uh, over a year ago, that was a clear execution of that strategy. It fits squarely into that strategy because literally overnight, it doubled our premium size. More importantly, however, it provided us with a much more balanced book of business. So it took us down our trajectory of our goal of specialty insurance and reinsurance by giving us a nice 50-50 premium split between those two lines of business or those two areas in the market. It also gave us a lot more enhanced platform capabilities. So we became a much larger syndicate in Lloyd's, specialty syndicate in Lloyd's, which commands leadership. 
And it also gave us access to a very strategic platform in Dublin, which we use both to access the EU for insurance and reinsurance. And most importantly, we use that same platform to access specialty insurance business in the US because it's fully licensed for ENS business. So with that, and then of course, the obvious, a much larger talent pool that we added to our already strong talent pool, it was a real boost to bringing this strategy to life. So what we intend to do is essentially leverage all of that to continue on our trajectory. And when you talk about differentiation, I think Hamilton has always differentiated itself by being incredibly responsive, both in terms of product and in terms of service. And we will be able to do that with a much larger franchise and operation going forward. So it's staying small and nimble, but now you're, you're slightly less small, but, uh, but still want to be nimble. Yes, but you know, when it's part of the culture, then it stays part of the culture if you nourish it that way. And we pay a lot of attention to keeping the things about our culture alive and that nimbleness and that entrepreneurial spirit is something that we nourish every day. And would you say that's a big part of differentiation strategy? Is is it that in in this kind of market where brokers need answers quite quickly, you're able to provide those answers and decide what you're going to do, what you're not going to do? Definitely. Provide quick answers, provide alternatives, and brokers and clients like that. Well, thanks for setting that out. So much of a journalist I am. Nothing's really changed is what you're saying. That's good to hear. What has changed, I suppose, is the market itself has changed since Hamilton was in existence. And um, now that the market is in a better place, where are you seeing the best opportunities for expansion? I have to say, we were formed in the teeth of a soft market, so we're really happy (laughs) to finally, and are very excited about, you know, the opportunities that presented in the best market that Hamilton has had the pleasure of experience. So we actually see opportunity across all the areas that we play in. If I just start with reinsurance, for example, we're not only able to grow our line sizes with our existing clients, also we've been nurturing clients along our journey. So we also have the opportunity to provide our product offerings to new clients. We just recently re-entered the mortgage business, which is, I think, a very opportune time now, given the number of refinancings and with interest rates being so low, the number of home purchases. So I think that was a really good time to re-enter. And then on the specialty reinsurance side, we're growing in areas that have been in need of correction, like aviation, marine, and energy. So that's the reinsurance side of our business where we're seeing opportunities and we're targeting where we're growing. As you know, we have a unit called Strategic Partnerships. And mostly that involves our ILS capabilities. And we recently launched, you know, ADARE which was our foray into managing third-party capital. That is also going quite well, and we saw some opportunities there, as did we see some opportunity in sponsoring our first uh, cat bond, Easton Re. So there's a second area of opportunity and where we're prepared to act. And then lastly, but by no means least, and as a matter of fact, probably the most opportunity for us to take advantage of this market is in the specialty insurance space. I think we're seeing, as others are, the most momentum in insurance business, and particularly in specialty insurance business. And there, we're very well poised, both through our expanded Lloyd's franchise, which only offers specialty insurance, where we're seeing opportunities to grow. We also have opportunities to grow specialty insurance in specific classes of business property DNF and excess casualty, which we offer out of Bermuda. But most importantly, through the platforms that I noted to you earlier, 
and the recent addition of talent in the U.S. We recently appointed a gentleman named Clay Rhodes to run our U.S. MGA. This is an in-house MGA that writes on our own platform. And that will be focused on U.S. ENS business. We recently hired talent in the transactional liability space, in the environmental liability space. We have people on the ground already writing war and terror business, and we'll be adding lines of business there. We'll be adding talent in the ENO and DNO space. So that is an area where we see a particular opportunity and will be a particular area of focus and growth for us, but it'll always be thoughtful. We're not chasing top line. We're chasing talent that's going to write thoughtful premium on our platform. Yes, certainly. If I was a betting man and I had to put my chips on one particular segment of the global specialty wholesale reinsurance market, I would say US ENS. So as you go after that, is it more of an infrastructure play that you really need those people to have that traction? Is it something you feel that you've got to do locally closer to the risk itself? So for certain classes that we're targeting in the U.S., we like to be closer. It's a complement between what we're writing in London as a specialty player in the U.S. and where we have licensing. But being on the ground gives us access to different kind of ENS business. And that's what we're targeting with the addition of Clay Rhodes. He grew up at companies like Colony and Kinsale. So he'll know exactly what business that's worth getting into. And we have the infrastructure already in place. We have some talent and we're attracting new talent to help us grow this franchise. So you've got so many different ways of playing it. You can pick it up if it's in London or going to Dublin, or you can do it locally via the MGA. Or Bermuda, of course. <laughs> Bermuda has the opportunity. Right, exactly. The specialty insurance business that goes to Bermuda, we're up and running. A specialty insurance business that goes into Lloyd's, we've got the teams and, and the platform in place. Our USMGA will access that local ENS business, leveraging both the Lloyd's platform as well as the Dublin insurance carrier. It's a good market. And actually, you said... I read somewhere, one of the insurance uh, publications, my maybe my esteemed former one, that you said that the current harder market has legs. What do you think the drivers are behind that? Can you explain that? Because it doesn't seem to be a market that has a lack of capital, but you're saying we've got legs and so we should be expecting this hardening to continue. Yeah, I did say that, I think, last month at an event. And I really believe that there's longevity to the momentum here because there is not just one factor that is driving it. There are several underlying factors that are driving this market momentum. Number one, back-to-back years of loss-making. It's going to be another loss-making year for a number of people in the industry. That plays a role. Capacity reduction. You know, you've seen a number of players reduce their capacity in different lines of business, whether it was DNF, DNO, cyber, you name it, that capacity reduction also plays a role. Interest rates. We are at record low interest rates on a global basis, and therefore that tells you you have to get your underwriting right. You have to get the right return for the risk. You're not going to be able to rely on making it up on the interest side of the equation, on on the other side of your balance sheet. And I think last, but by no means least, is this whole concept of uncertainty in the market. And that's in relation to reserve strength of the industry. I feel very confident about our reserves at Hamilton. We test in the top quartile of the market for reserves. I don't know if that's the case for everybody. So reserve strength being an area of uncertainty. Social inflation being an area of uncertainty. And then let's not forget COVID (laughs) and all the uncertainty that COVID has brought into this market. And particularly given the duration that this uh, long-term clat is playing out at.
So I think it's those, the fact that there are a number of underlying fundamental factors that are buoying this market, and those factors cannot be corrected in one year. We're going to go into those in a minute. There's a really great theme of discussion there. But before we do, what about the class of 2020? Do you think they made much of an impact or are they going to put out the fire of this heating up harder market? Again, there's just too many underlying factors that are supporting the momentum in the market. And let's put it in perspective. A total of about $16 billion of capital has entered the market in a market that's $600 billion of capital. So it's not a capital play here. A majority of this capital went to existing players, not new players. So there are only a small number of real new, new players. I think it would be naive to say they had no impact. They may have, if anything, they've muted some of the rate increases that we would have expected on the reinsurance or the retro side. However, and they may have made some inroads writing retro, but on the reinsurance side, I certainly didn't see ourselves being displaced by new capital, which makes sense because this is a game of incumbency, right? It's much harder to get on a placement new than it is for an existing player to say they're going to get off. And very often, new capacity has to wait their turn. We had to wait our turn when we were a newbie back in 2015. So I think that this new capacity is going to have to have some patience to make any kind of inroads in this market. You mentioned about retro, and you mentioned before about your ADA platform. You've got a retro sidecar as part of that. And how did that go for you? Obviously, we've had anecdotal evidence that some were slightly disappointed, but maybe they were disappointed because they had incredibly high expectations before they started. How has it gone for you in terms of were you able, do you think you were able to deploy most of that capital at the sort of returns that you were expecting and hoping for? We did not deploy the entirety of our capital. We are very cautious stewards of other people's money. We were looking for specific types of deals with specific return hurdles. Where we saw those deals, we wrote them. And where we didn't, we did not deploy the capital. Once again, this is a long game for us. So we will pick our spots as we see them. And uh, we were happy to be able to have this offering in this market. And we will continue to develop that as time goes on. You're talking about almost the psychology of the marketplace. If markets are defined by fear and greed, that kind of battle between the two, it seems that fear seems to be having slightly the upper hand in the psychology of, of, of how the market sort of its animal spirits are faring. You mentioned about casualty loss trends. They seem to have paused for a while, perhaps because of COVID, because the judicial systems have shut down for a while. Should we still be alarmed by them? Or do you think we've got a handle on them now? A handle on casualty is an oxymoron. <laughs> I don't know if I use the word alarmed because it's a pretty strong word, but certainly I use the word concerned. In the US, you've got a brand new administration. And with this administration and their leanings, it's very possible that you find more plaintiff friendly laws or regulations being passed. That said, that will not happen overnight. <laughs> we are, after all, dealing with politics and government, but still, that is something, you know, an umbrella to think about. You nailed it when you said courts have been closed for much of last year. So this may have led to some settlements as opposed to some of the larger jury verdicts that we've been seeing. But these courts will reopen and they'll reopen sometime mid-late 2021. 
So I do think that there's some cause for concern there as to see what happens when they do, particularly because this concept of social inflation that we've been seeing and this drive, this generational shift and drive to make people whole, so to speak. So that will play a role in the caution that we should have. And finally, how COVID plays out in casualty. We still don't know what lines of business it will affect, how it will affect those business, whether we'll be successful in defending some of these claims. So that's an area that I do think is a big watching space for many. That's interesting on the COVID and the liability aspect. Certainly after 1-1, when the big broker reports have all come out, there seems to be some kind of coalescence around a 50 to $70 billion industry loss range, perhaps for COVID. Does that make sense to you? And also, I wonder if there's a problem with communication or perception that um, whether that 50 to 70 really includes a genuine best estimate for what the liability casualty side of this might be, whether it's simply more of a short tail first party and business interruption type losses estimate or not. Anyway, I'd love to discuss that with you. Estimating where COVID's going to end up is certainly beyond my pay grade. (laughs) And just look at it. Some of the brightest minds at the onset of this pandemic set ranges from a low of 30 billion to 100 plus billion dollars. That's a fairly large range, you know, for one incident. But it just goes to show you how complex it all is. Now, you're right, the industry's coming in around the 50 to $70 billion mark. I do believe there's an element of casualty in there. Anything that's economically sensitive, those losses that's in there, whether it's right or wrong, remains to be seen. But I think that the industry is coalescing around here because we've had some clarity come out, right? We've had some clarity around court verdicts we've seen. We've seen some more clarity around wording. So I do think we know more now than we did a year ago. However, there's a lot of things that we're still learning and how these mutations can pan out and how this affects the economy and the knock-on effects of that. So I think it's still sometime, we're like 18 to 24 months away of really from really knowing what this is going to mean for the industry. So there's still potential for surprises on, on either side, upside or downside. I think that there's just some clarity and things that we're going to learn along the way that are going to inform our view of what this loss actually means. After the acquisition of Pembroke, you've now settled down your Lloyd's business with a new management team. What are your specific plans for the Lloyd's business? So we have an exceptional team at Lloyd's, exceptionally strong talent, and we're able to attract very strong talent. So that is a very important thing for me because it's all about the people that you have running your business. And they are all intent on working very closely together and with Lloyd's to build this thriving specialty insurance business that I talked about earlier. With the acquisition very largely behind us now, we can focus on the lines of business that we are specialized in and that we want to grow. And that's what you're going to see, just a further execution of our specialty insurance strategy with the team in place there. Through Pembroke, you're an important Lloyd's turnkey provider. What do you think of something like the syndicate in a box concept? You know, I think it's very interesting concept because, as you know, Lloyd's is a very complicated institution to navigate. And syndicate in a box is a way of giving people easier access to this formidable marketplace known as Lloyd's. So we actually welcome the initiative and we think it's a way of bringing new business and new talent to the industry. 
One very successful application of this syndicate of box concept is syndicate, um, I think it's 1796, which is the syndicate that was formed to ensure the storage and transportation of COVID-19 vaccines to emerging economies. That's the kind of innovation that we'd like to see at Lloyd's, and it has a nice social impact as a result. So that is an initiative that we were very welcoming to see and also had the privilege of supporting. So it was kind of a two Lloyd's is in the middle of a big reform process, Blueprint 2. We said Blueprint 1 was perhaps, if we describe that as the sort of big a la carte menu of things and of a wish list of things you might want to have. Blueprint 2 seems to be like the food order that's now gone to the kitchen saying we need to, we're going to produce this. And, and John Neal described it as the rubber hitting the road. What do you think of Blueprint 2? Do you think these are the right priorities and you think things are going in the right direction? So I think I'd start by saying that streamlining an institution as complicated and massive as Far Region of Lloyd is a huge undertaking. You don't transform an institution like that overnight. What I really like about Blueprint 2 is exactly what you said. It brings the necessary focus. You know, what am I having for my appetizer, main course, and dessert? It brings the necessary focus to the vision that was set out in Blueprint 1. And it focuses on three key areas. Areas, right? Digital platforms. And in that respect, not creating yet another one, but finding ways of integrating digital platforms with others that exist. So I like that part of it. It's data. It's all about the data in Lloyd's and how to leverage that data in Lloyd's, which is very topical and important in our industry. And finally, it's about claims and how to more smoothly regulate claims. So I like the focus on three key areas and about creating strong standards, data standards, processes to streamline the industry. And so for that reason alone, I think very highly of Blueprint 2. And also, I think very highly of the leadership at Lloyd's and their will to execute this in a way that's going to benefit all market players. Well, at Hamilton, you've got tech credentials running through your DNA and part of your formation, given that the partners that founded you. And you've got your own technological venture, Attune. And sometimes because you're such a broad organization, it's really interesting. I'd love to have an update on how Attune's going and whether it's getting traction. So Attune, as you know, is a joint venture between Hamilton, Two Sigma, our founder, and AIG. And it's targeting the small commercial market in the U.S., which is a very large market in the U.S. And it targets working with brokers. It does not go direct. Attune has done an an amazing job at penetrating that small commercial space and now is very well poised because as we see rate improvement in that area as well, it's very well poised to capture that as well. We're very pleased with how far it's gone in that space and also very pleased to have recently recruited a gentleman named Eric Michaels as the chief underwriting officer of the platform. So we're looking very fondly at that space and at Attune's prospects in that space. We'll hopefully be looking forward to seeing the words attune appearing more in results and all that kind of stuff. On the technological side, in the last four or five years, I as a journalist, I've been reporting on this fantastic insurtech phenomenon. Last year, it came through another watershed with some big IPOs with some pretty interesting uh, valuations coming off those. And also at the same time, we seem to be in this age of populist capitalism. Do you think the more traditional insurance market is a in danger of becoming irrelevant, where a business that IPO'd last year that has probably sold 100 and something million of insurance has a market cap of $9 billion. There's some important messaging in all of this. And that messaging is that the market 
wants innovation and more streamlined technology. That's what I would say is the two big headlines. They want innovation and product and services, and they want a more efficient delivery. And anybody who denies that reality, I think, will suffer in the long run, not in the short run, but in the long run. And therefore, I think we shouldn't look at these insure tech businesses as enemies. Rather, we should look at them for learning opportunities and also for partnership, because they very often play in one segment of the market, whether it's a product or one portion of the value chain. So there's ample opportunity for the industry to partner with insurtechs, A, to learn, and B, to add that much needed technology and efficiency to their arsenal of what they're offering to their clients. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here for us in the industry to learn from this, and I think the brave will do so. (laughs) Instead of kind of carping from the sidelines, we should be taking some of that easy, get your phone out, in four seconds you can get a quote and place cover and make a claim in another three seconds later kind of user experience and bring that to our world. Look, COVID alone, look what that's done to us and for us and how we operated. On a dime, we've all had to go to working from home, ordering our groceries largely online, any clothing, even my father, who's almost 90, has had to embrace technology. So I think if anything, that's got to teach our industry something. There is a need for modernization, for the embracing of technology. And I think it's this both COVID and the success of InsurTechs has taught us that. Peanut, I look at my back catalogue of episodes. I'm usually very pleased that I've got wonderful series of top industry leaders to talk to me. But what disappoints me sometimes is that there aren't many women. And that's why I'm so glad that you're on the show, because you are one of quite a rare breed of prominent female industry leader in this space. Obviously, the industry, we were reforming ourselves technologically in that side, but we've also been trying to reform ourselves on a diversity and inclusion ticket. What kind of report card would you give the industry on its attempts to change itself culturally over the last three or four years? So I think I would differentiate there between report card on attempts and report card on (laughs) actual delivery. And I do think that the industry is embracing the whole concept of diversity and inclusion and speaking about it more. And I think we will hear people speak about it more as the whole topic of ESG gains more and more prominence, both regulators, rating agencies, investors, et cetera. And and diversity inclusion is part of that broad umbrella, right? So I do think that the industry has talked about it and is raising awareness for the topic. There has been some progress, perhaps on the gender front, maybe a little bit less when it concerns other aspects of diversity and inclusion. So there, there's even a longer runway. But if you ask me about a report card on actual, I still am a little bit disappointed that after so many years about talking about it, there's been less progress than I think many of us had hoped or expected at this stage in the game. I take comfort in the fact that it is a long life (laughs) and that people are talking about it more and more. And I do hope over time to see more diversity and inclusion reflected in our industry at all levels. And you're optimistic that perhaps it is something that is quite a long pipeline, takes quite a long time to start coming through, that you're optimistic that it will start to come through the next three or four years? I think that it's got more 
opportunity to come through as more people pay attention to it. I would like to say that I'm optimistic, but I think I'll leave it with saying I think that people paying attention to it will give it more opportunity to show itself. So I want to keep the pressure on people to keep this high on their agenda. Well, thanks very much for doing that. Peanut, this is going to be a slightly shorter podcast than usual because of you. You're wonderfully concise and to the point and you don't waffle at all. So thank you so much for that because I really enjoy your direct talking style and I'm sure the listeners out there will do as well. So thank you so much. Obviously, you've got multiple, multiple things going on at all different times. So make sure you book in again to tell us how everything's going. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure, Mark. Always happy to talk to you and uh, and I really enjoy your podcast. So keep them going. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>